Welcome to the Wickedly Smart Women podcast, featuring stellar conversations with emerging and established Wickedly Smart Women. Thanks for joining us today as we celebrate women who are committed, care deeply, and have the courage to take action and create conscious change all around the world. Now here's your Wickedly Smart host, Angel B. Hartwell. Welcome to another episode of the Wickedly Smart Women podcast, where we celebrate Wickedly Smart Women and provide our listeners with a wealth of wisdom, along with immediately actionable steps to be smarter, spunkier, and more successful in their impact and their leadership. This is your host, Angel B. Hartwell, and today I have the distinct pleasure of bringing to the microphone Debbie Peterson. She is an award-winning entrepreneur who sold her company in Scotland and returned to California and realized that her business experience could help her city. Rising from planning commissioner to council member to mayor, she found unthinkable corruption and together with a disparate group of citizens brought it down. Her books, The Happiest Corruption, Sleaze, Lies, and Suicide in a California Beach Town, and City Council 101, the Insider's Guide for Newly Elected Council Members, and her podcast, Corruption Chronicles, tell the true crime story and teach elected representatives and citizens how to ensure that their towns don't become the next happiest corruption in America. And I am so delighted to welcome you to the show today, Debbie. Thank you. It's an honor. Looking yeah. forward to it. Well, Debbie and I met at the National Publicity Summit. And as soon as we met, I was like, oh, we've got to bring Debbie to the show. You're the first person we've ever had on the show who, you know, has done the, the thing that you have done, which is go from being an award-winning entrepreneur to being the mayor and then uncovering all of this true crime and now writing about it. So we're really excited to have you here. I want to start, Debbie, by asking were you always a leader? Like, were you the kid who was like in charge of making sure that everybody was like lined up when it was time to line up? Or like, was this leadership quality in you from the get go? Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you were as a child? And maybe if there was anything in your childhood that led you to ultimately becoming the kind of leader that you've become? I was not. Well, I, I guess I could. You could say I was a little bit bossy. My family called me Lucy from peanuts. I didn't think of myself as bossy, but I was the big sister and I did have a little brother. And, but, but really what I think of more is that I loved, and my mother used to talk about this. I loved a shoebox that she gave me for Christmas that had a stapler in it and scotch tape and scissors and all the things you need to do business types of things to get it done. I did not like dolls. And I liked the practical things. If I could cut the doll's hair, I liked them, but I didn't otherwise, you know, I really liked getting stuff done. So, but I, I wasn't, I didn't think of myself as a leader and I don't think I really was a leader as a child. It wasn't until I got involved in um, a very active church when I was 14 or 15, and they did a lot of work with young people teaching leadership. And that's where I I learned good leadership and I learned really good communication skills. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Well, let's talk first about like as you grew up, as you learned to be a leader, 
How did you get into entrepreneurship from the box of, you know, staples and tape and all, all the rest of it? And what kind of entrepreneur were you when you were in Scotland? Well, first of all, I had no idea that I was an entrepreneur. And it it wasn't until I had gotten all the way through college and I'd done a degree in public relations. It was communications and writing that I wanted to do. It was public relations. It wasn't until I had helped my mother launch her business, which was a cake and cookie business when Debbie Fields and everybody and their mother were doing cake and cookie companies. That's when a friend of mine and I went for a walk and she was, I don't know, 10 years older. And she said, Debbie, you're an entrepreneur. And I said, what's an entrepreneur? And I realized she was probably right. And sure enough, she was. She gave me my calling or she recognized my calling that I hadn't realized in myself. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, so let's talk about your entrepreneurial journey. What were you doing in Scotland and what did you win awards for? And what inspired you to sell your company? I mean, that's also a big like power move that many people, you know, they think about entrepreneurship. Maybe they maybe have somebody else identify that they're an entrepreneur like you did. Very few people think about the idea of ultimately selling their entrepreneurship. So can you talk us through a little bit of that journey? Sure. The church I was involved with was a Presbyterian church, and they did exchanges with young people from the Church of Scotland, which is the same makeup, basically. And so when I had a communications degree, I'd already gone back and forth and done volunteer work for several summers, four or five summers through high school and college, and had lots of friends by then, and we'd gone back and forth. And so I realized I wanted to go work abroad for a couple of years, but with a communications degree, I had to go somewhere where people more or less spoke the same language. Paris sounded fun, but my French wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. So I went to Glasgow, Scotland, and For the first two years, I worked in marketing and public relations, and two of the three companies that I worked with changed hands, did layoffs, all kinds of things happened. And I realized, as my mother had realized, that I was going to hit a glass ceiling Mm -hmm. and that if I wanted to, I could get an MBA, but then I would just be overqualified for jobs I wasn't going to get anyway. And remember, this was uh, not, this was 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And It was worse in Scotland at that time than it is here in the United States. So I I realized by then, because I had been doing taste testing on marketing and public relations for new food products for Scottish companies, I realized that my mother's products would work really well. And by then, her company was doing very well in California. So I went, took an entrepreneurship course I believe it was a four-month course at the Scottish Business School and learned everything I needed to know. All the things I never wanted to take at college because they sounded dreadful. Anybody who took them said they were really difficult and struggled. So I had to learn about computers and I had to, well, sort of computers. We really didn't have them yet at that point. <laughs> right. And I had to learn about accounting. And all of a sudden, all of these things were fascinating to me because suddenly they meant something that I could do something with. Mm. And so I could see there was a create a huge creative side to business and creativity was always what I thought was my interest, writing. And I realized that with a business, you can take nothing. It's like a cookie recipe. You can take all this stuff and put it together and come out with something that's wonderful. Mm. And so I, I, 
did some market research and I found out that my business could work. I put together a business plan with the help of the business school. I learned how to read profit and loss statements and balance sheets and budgets. And we did it all by hand then. we Well, we did have calculators. We had adding machines. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, my mom had an adding machine and she taught me We how didn't to do have it. Excel spreadsheets. Okay. Oh, no. We had the big green ledger books, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 I never did master those. But um <laughs> Anyway, I learned how to do all of those things. And I was successful in getting 6,000 pounds, British pounds, to start my business. I bought a very small van and a very large oven. And we ended up selling to supermarkets and Safeway. And that's probably the only name that folks here might know. And Aldi and Marks and Spencer and British Airways and British Rail and British Midland Airways. And what were you selling? Cookies? Oh, or we were selling muffins my or grandmother's food? recipes for cakes and cookies. Oh I, my goodness, I copied yeah. my mother's business that I had helped her to launch when I had just gotten out of college and, and helped her start up for a year. Oh my God, I, that's amazing. I did my mother's PR and the hiring and firing and the launching of her company a year after I got out of college and then came or went to Britain to work. Right. And so, and then you, the fast point. forward a little bit. Yeah. So then you made the decision at some point to sell. So how long did you do business? And then you I made did. the decision yeah. to sell. I did, I, let's see, for I think about 13 years. Okay. And at that point, I really wanted the freedom to be able to go back to the United States if I ever needed to. My parents were getting older. Mm-hmm. I was getting to an age where I I had gotten married and we had a son and I felt I might need to raise him in the United States because we didn't have any family and my husband didn't have family in Britain and I wasn't sure about the school systems there if I really wanted him to go through those systems and I decided that the best thing would be a management buy-in. And I was one of the first women in Scotland, I think possibly the first woman who attracted a big outside venture capital company to do a management buy-in. Of course you were. Of course you were. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so there was a learning curve still, though, because although I did do that, what I didn't know at the time, and what a lot of people, I think, learn the hard way, is that when you do that, often the buy-in when it's backed by a big venture capital company or a big firm, they really want to get the original guy out, the original person out. Of course, of course. And so they soon shepherded me out. And when they do that, it, you lose the heart and soul of the company. And I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but why is it that homemade stuff is so much better than even the best patissiere can make? Mm. But I think it's because there's something about the love that goes into it. There's something about the heart. And when you take the heart of an entrepreneur out of a company, you lose something. The magic goes. Yeah. So the company never did as well once they took out the magic. Well, then now the magic came to, to California and suddenly decided. <laughs> Uh, suddenly decided the magic came to California and suddenly decided to get involved in government. So let's talk. I want to really focus on that now. First of all, you came back to California. What was it that initially inspired you to get involved in government? I hate politics. I hated (laughs) politics then. But what I saw was I was in a small town and they needed help with their image. I know about PR and they needed help with redevelopment. And I'd done a lot of redevelopment work 
once I'd become successful in business, I consulted a lot. Mm. And I realized that those were two things that I could really help my small town with. Mm. So I started on the planning commission and then became a city council member and then was elected as the first directly elected female mayor. And I was able to do a lot of those things. We we managed to get a bond through to fix the streets, which were falling apart. And we managed to get a lot of good things done. Hmm. We also found a lot of bad things that got in the way of doing some of the best management practices and using money the way we should have been using it. Yeah. So let's talk about what you found. Unthinkable corruption. <laughs> it and... still blows my mind. I still am shocked every day almost when people come to me and tell me more stories. I found out first because I started noticing that when we, we used to serve on different committees hmm. and I served on 16 of the 16, about four of them on the boards. They were so badly overseen that if they weren't corrupt, they were wide open for it. Mm -hmm. And then people started coming to me and telling me stories about things that didn't sound right. Mm -hmm. And it progressed and it progressed. And eventually I realized that the whole county was riddled with corruption mm -hmm. and people were demanding that things be done. And so I started working with we actually got the the leading corruption investigator in the United States, the one who got found Oliver North and the Colombian drug cartels and the arms Noriega situation. He's the one who masterminded those. And he mm. he was so angry at what I told him about what was going on in our little communities mm. that he came and helped us. And wow. he's helped us a lot over the years. Most of what we've managed to fix has been because of him. Mm. Beautiful. Well, we're going to take a short break, Debbie. And when we come back, we're going to talk a lot more about how everyday people can get more involved in government. And we are going to go a little bit into the corruption because you've written a whole book about it. But before we do that, we are going to go to the break. Wickedly Smart Women, we could use your help if you are enjoying the show and want us to stay on the air, please consider making a donation at www.wickedlysmartwomen.com. We'd also like to ask you to share with your lovely lady friends who you think might benefit from our content. Help a gal out and let your sisters, mothers, daughters, friends, and colleagues know about the show so we can serve them too. I do want to send out a big thank you to Martha Saunders, who made a donation. Thank you, Martha. And I also want to thank all of our listeners who are downloading, rating, and reviewing. We're welcoming thousands of downloads from all over the world, 104 countries now. And we just found out we've won our eighth award. So we want to shout out this week to our listeners. We might as well shout out to our listeners in the UK and Scotland. And we might as well also shout out to our listeners in California and our listeners in... Bolivia, because there's probably some corruption down there. And we will be right back with Debbie Peterson. The Wickedly Smart Women podcast is brought to you by the Wealthy Life Mentor. Women, are you on the edge knowing that life is calling you to make a change? Are you ready to be part of the evolution of what it means to be a wickedly smart woman creating your wealthy life by design, a life that is an extraordinary work of art? Angel B. Hartwell, the Wealthy Life Mentor, is hired by women in transition, women just like you who want to break through to their brilliance, become clear on the value of their wisdom, and embody a beauty-filled, balanced life of shameless self-expression. 
Discover your wealthy life readiness by taking the quiz at quiz.wealthylifementor.com. And we are back with Debbie Peterson. You can find out more about Debbie at debbiepeterson.com. Now, she's got a couple books we talked about in the introduction, The Happiest Corruption, Sleaze, Lies, and Suicide in a California Beach Town. Her other book, City Council 101, Insider's Guide for Newly Elected Council Members. Debbie, you also have a course. Can you talk a little bit about what that course is about and why you created it? as a response to the experiences you've had. Yeah, the reason I I created the course, it's called Double Dias, Adventures in Local Government. I created it because there is no playbook when you get elected. Nobody tells you how to be a mayor or what to do. They don't tell you the rules about your roles and responsibilities on a board. They don't explain open government. And so it took me probably six years of osmosis to figure it out. So I thought I'm going to, I'm going to break all this down so that everyday people can figure it out for themselves quickly and become effectively quickly. And especially the first, this this newest one is for elected officials. Anybody can do it. So I'm doing a discount on the course. It's $97. And in about four hours, you can learn what it took me six years to learn. And I'm hoping that'll help people get involved quickly and get involved. And that's available through my website. And I am doing that introductory price, at least probably until everybody gets sworn in sometime in January. Right. So let's talk, Debbie, about maybe the glass ceiling in politics, right? We talk a little bit about the glass ceiling in politics. You know, one of the stats that you shared with me is only 28% of people who are in political office are female. And this, you know, our audience is wickedly smart women. So- Oftentimes, maybe I'm projecting, but oftentimes I feel like we women are already spread very thin. However, what's happening in our governments has direct impact on ourselves personally, our families, our children, our communities, the places that we work, our money, all the things. So can you talk a little bit about your passion for helping even more women to enter into the political arena at whatever level is the right fit for them. Yeah. And, you know, the easy thing is to start at the local level. You can be on a parks commission. You can be on a planning commission. You can just volunteer for the city and get the hang of it. And the reason we have 28% and Rwanda, Nigeria, A lot of the third world countries that we think of are so much higher up than we are. And we're no better than we were in, say, 1985. We're not making progress. And yet we represent 51% of the population. Mm -hmm. And when you've got something skewed that far, this is not a representative government. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be a representative government. We have to get our voices out there. And women play very differently than men. Women tend to combat rather than competing. We would probably have more peace if women were had more more chances to be in leadership. But also when when we do see facts and figures about women on boards, they are often more fiscally responsible and more fiscally successful. So there are a lot of really good reason to get women in leadership, apart from the ethical reasons. Mm-hmm. But there are also some really good reasons for business women to be in leadership because business women do have those skills. They know how to read balance sheets and profit and loss sheets. They've worked in human relations. They understand all those things in a small business. They know how to juggle it all. Mm -hmm. And 
it's politics is dirty. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. And but if you start at the local level, that's where we can start to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that's where women can start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the dirt, right? I'm really super curious, like, what do you mean by happiest, the happiest corruption? (laughs) The name of your book, I'm like, what is that all about? So can you give us a little bit more detail about some of what you found? And, you know, I think there's also maybe the perception if politics is dirty and there is a lot of corruption, that it could also be dangerous. So can we talk about that and that, you know, I don't know whether you think this, but could that be a factor that's keeping women from stepping into that space? I say yes to everything you've just said. Yes. And it's not always dirty. You know, it's on a spectrum like everything else. Mm -hmm. There are places, Massachusetts does a really good job. I came across a little town, I think it was Morristown, North Carolina, and it looked like they were doing a great job. And there are some places that do a great job, some places that do worse than us, not a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And a lot of places are somewhere in the middle. (laughs) Oprah came to town in 2011, and she said that our county seat, San Luis Obispo, was the happiest city in America. And she's right. It's a beautiful place. This is a wonderful place to live. The problem is everybody's so happy and it's so expensive to live there that nobody has time to pay any attention and nobody is paying any attention. And that's when the corruption starts. The opportunists come in. It's like this in a business. It's like this with anything. It's like this with your health. If you don't pay attention, it falls apart. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens with our government. If we don't pay attention, it's going to fall apart. It's going to go places we would rather it didn't go. And Mm -hmm. yes, it can be dangerous. But it's dangerous if you don't do something about it, too. If you think about it, if if the money for health care is being filched and going somewhere else, if the money for police and fire is going somewhere else, that's dangerous, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where has the money been going there, Debbie, in your little town? Oh, <laughs> to well, somebody else's pockets, right? A lot of people's pockets, but not mm-hmm. the pockets of the people who put it there, mm-hmm. who put it there for their own benefit which is the sad, that's what upsets me most of all. Right. And so what I'm hearing there, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the taxpayers are paying their taxes to fund the town operations. And the town operations are not being properly funded because the money has been going in other directions. Was there any other kind of corruption that was going on, like bribery or like what other things were happening? It's all of that. And that when I first started finding it, I wanted to know how they did it. I was really intrigued. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and it's like any good business. You know, when you look at as a business person, you're looking at all the different ways you can pull money in. You can do different products. You can go, you know, vertical, expand horizontally, all kinds of different ways. Well, crooks do exactly the same. And if no one's paying any attention to what they're doing, they're just going to keep doing it and they get better and better and better at it. Like the rest of us, we keep practicing, we get better and nobody comes in and competes with us. We get better and better and better. So Yeah, it's done in a lot of different ways. Some of it's bribery. Some of it is just overcharging for things. And then money kicks back into politicians' pockets. Mm. In our cannabis industry, it was a lot of bribery. But it was also things like choosing only people with felonies in their backgrounds to run cannabis dispensaries. Well, you know, there's all kinds of rackets going on there. And why would you only choose the crooked people? Mm, So it's those kinds of things you have to watch out for when you're when you're paying attention to your government. 
Well, so you paid attention. And as a result, you know, you've started to root it out. Do you feel like you have rooted out all of it? Or are you still working on this? Are you still the mayor or has somebody else taken over? Tell us a little bit no, about that. I, when, when the cannabis industry came in, it got to the point where they owned my county. I mean, literally owned the county, the property, the people, the government, everything. And I, I reached the point where I was so outnumbered. There was nothing more I could do constructively. And I felt like the most constructive thing I could do would be to call it out and write about it. Because I wasn't being heard. I wasn't being heard at any level that I was talking about it. I was locals understood it. They got it. Some of them, a mm. few of them. But the, at the federal level, at the national level, the press, the media, the law enforcement, they weren't getting it. Mm. And so I thought, OK, I'm going to write a bestseller. Mm. <laughs> I'm going to use the power of the pen here. This is what I've got left. And this is going to be my last gift to my community. And that's why I've got about, I've got five years dedicated to this. I've spent three already. And then I'm going to commit the next five to making sure this doesn't happen to other people and to seeing if we can't kind of finish the cleanup here. Yeah. Get somebody's attention. Beautiful. Well, like when the whole county is owned, it's like the, what is, what is the old saying? The, the fox is in charge of the hen house. <laughs> Right. Yeah. The tail is wagging the dog. Yeah. The tail is like wagging that. the dog. But the fox is, the is fox. in charge of the yeah. hen house. Like, I mean, it's almost it. So what I'm hearing, Debbie, is that your biggest intention at this point is to educate others to do two things. Number one, to get involved earlier is better in your local government, especially if you're female, because we need to correct the mis underrepresentation of our demographic in politics. Number two, you want to help people who are getting involved in politics to get their feet wet and on the ground and have some education quickly through your course. Thank you for creating that. And number three, you're wanting people to have the data that to look like where they can look before their whole county becomes corrupted. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. Yeah, you thank you. You you put it really well. I'm going to have uh -huh. to copy that down and repeat it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I just want to say thank you for coming in and also just encouraging women in general to get involved. It doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be the mayor. It can start small and and you know, even one of the things that I did in my town was I actually saw that there was a need for, at one point in the journey, that there was a need for the arts community to be highlighted. You know, So it's not always about corruption. Sometimes it can be about what can we, how can we incorporate and add, be additive to our community, to make our community more attractive, to make our community more robust, to make our community a place where we all want to live. And one of the things I did was I started a thing called Art Walk, which is now in its like 18th year in our city. I started it, but people, you know, picked it up and kept on going with that and and um was also instrumental in a thing called City Arts. So I want everyone who's listening to just know that it doesn't have to, you don't have to be experiencing the true crime side of things to get involved in your government. And we need both. We need people who yeah. are willing to do both, right? To, yeah. to put their nose, to put everyone's nose in the poop like Debbie is doing. Mm -hmm. Say, look, there's poop here. And also, what can we do to make where we live an even more beautiful and safe and rewarding place for everyone? Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there is room for everyone. Yeah. 
everyone use your, use the skills you've got. Use yeah. what God gave you. Work with what you've got. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with me today, Debbie. It was a pleasure. Listeners, we love feedback. Please let us know what you think of today's show by calling into our listener line. We'll have that number for you in the show notes. Or you can send in questions or guest suggestions to listeners at wickedlysmartwomen.com. We might even give you a shout out on the show. Thanks for tuning in. Keep your ears open. And remember, you are a wonderful woman. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, and listening. Be sure to rate and review Wickedly Smart Women on Apple Podcasts and share with other women who can benefit from today's episode. Wickedly Smart Women is the premier podcast series for informing, activating, and inspiring the leader who carries profound wisdom and knows that now is the time to welcome wealth. We welcome your feedback and guest suggestions and invite you to subscribe to our mailing list to be notified of each new episode at wickedlysmartwomen.com.